Welcome to Justice Visions, the podcast about everything that is new in the domain of transitional justice. Justice Visions is hosted at the Human Rights Centre of Ghent University. For more information, visit justicevisions.org. Welcome, I'm Brigitte Hermans, researcher at Justice Visions at Ghent University, and with me is my co-host Artino, a Syrian human rights activist and a photographer. Hello, Artino. Hi, Brigitte. It's great to be discussing one of the main breakthroughs regarding justice for Syrians. Yeah, today we are looking into the activism of victim groups, which is quite remarkable because they have been advocating for justice initiatives that are more meaningful to victims and survivors, and they've also been very successful in doing so. Indeed, one of the achievements we will discuss is the Truth and Justice Charter. Five victim groups have launched this charter last year to outline their perspective and justice needs. Yes, and along with other organizations, the so-called Charter Victim Associations that you've just mentioned have also been the driving force behind the idea of a mechanism. And this is supposed to look into the fate of the missing and the disappeared because there are over 100,000 people in Syria whose fate is unknown because either they've been forcibly disappeared by the regime or they've been kidnapped by jihadi groups or ISIS. Yeah, unfortunately. This is one of the most painful experiences that unite many Syrians. We wanted to highlight in this episode how victim groups pushed international institutions to step up their efforts. Yeah, indeed. And it's a very important form also of resistance, their activism. And this is also what we wanted to discuss today, because victims and their families have been keeping resisting those same forces that are intent on breaking them. Let's start with the origins of that activism. You spoke to Cristela Yakinthu, a scholar uh, on transitional justice at the University of Birmingham. Uh, let's listen to that conversation. Hello, Cristela. It's uh, really nice to have you in our podcast episode on uh, victims' activities and agency, and um, especially because you're also involved in the Impunity Watch report that will be released after the summer. No one should speak on our behalf. Thank you so much for having me. It is my honor and my pleasure. Well, I think it's really important what you're doing, and that's, of course, what, why we wanted you to talk about the report, because it's a very much needed introduction to the establishment of Syrian victim groups. And I would first like to ask you to give us a bit of background about the formation of these groups around 2016. I think around like 2016, if, if we think back, we were five years into the violence and into the conflict and at a period when people, I think, had hoped for such a different end to 2011. And so I think around that period was also the time when the dynamics shifted really, really radically when the Russians had not just been supporting the Syrian regime but also had boots on the ground and they had planes in the air assertively. And so those years were really brutal really, really brutal. And alongside the Russians, there were coalition planes. And so it was around the time that there were so many airstrikes and it was so, so heartbreaking. And I think in that context, we had such a feeling of disappointment um, for victims, survivors, families with the international community. And this feeling that 
there any international kind of justice efforts that had started were non-existent or had failed and such a feeling of being absolutely abandoned and let down. And I think so in that dual context of this escalation of violence and this sense in the context that in the international community, they weren't going to do anything. There was this emergent sense of what can we do for ourselves? So those things together formed this kind of ripe moment for the establishment of organisations. And particularly, I remember Families for Freedom as this super important marker of victims groups organising across political lines. Yeah, thank you. That's really clear the way how you put it. It's easy to envisage why it's so important that these groups started to emerge firstly and also to organize themselves. And I was wondering if you could also highlight the reasons why um, former detainees are so key in this whole setup. My perspective is that former detainees have a a critical and and a really authentic voice that they felt wasn't being represented in any of the forums for dialogue. From what I hear from associations of former detainees when we speak, people were being released from prison, uh, dumped out of prisons with no support or, or released with no support and no one outside understanding their experiences. Associations of former detainees have this unique insight into what it is to be detained. They understand the shape of the problem, the institutional shape of the problem and the scale of it. They know what families need because their families were lobbying to have them released or went through the pain of of not knowing where they were if they were forcibly disappeared. And I think they're also acutely aware that every day that passes is a day of lives lost. And so one of of the kind of forefront aspects of what they do is to organise in their commitment to those who are still detained. So I think they fill an important space. And I guess one of the things that I've been reflecting on recently is that it's important that we note that there's a set of voices of former detainees that isn't always represented here. And I think that's the specific experiences of female former detainees. So often I think we focus, like rightly focus, on the extraordinary work being done by the associations of detainees that we have, but often they are the experiences of male former detainees. And there's also this group of associations that are a gathering voice, a more tentative but a gathering voice, um, and that is the experiences of former female detainees, like Release Me, for example. But I think there's still a gap. Yeah, thank you for drawing our attention indeed also to groups that um, are not always that visible. And I was wondering when you talked about um, justice needs and, and how these needs are so big and vast, really, they're also changing, of course. And could you maybe give us an idea about how different group of victims have different priorities when it comes to justice? For example, when it comes to criminal accountability or social and economic rights, if at all it is so easy to look into these needs categories. There is a fear of... When we talk about different needs of and different ways of seeing justice um, from different victim and survivor groups and the different priorities, the important thing to foreground is that justice means different things to different people at different times. But I think it's also important to say that 
All of the survivor and victims groups that I speak with are concerned that achieving justice for victims is going to be ignored in the bigger scheme of things because their demands are seen as problems that are going to impede the political transition, right? So that's also why you see in part this multiplicity of of platforms are pushing different kinds of accountability, different kinds of ideas of justice, because there is a fear underneath. But all of the people that I speak to have a nuanced approach to what justice is, and that justice is not the same thing, even to the same person in the same period of time. So there are short-term justice demands, for example, as a as the Charter highlights and as multiple groups have come together and said, as a short-term justice goal, w- there is, for example, an immediate measure that must be taken, which is stopping the violations, mitigating the suffering of victims, releasing detainees. But there is also alongside that an awareness that there is that is a step towards a bigger picture of what justice is, which is about accountability, about reparations, about all of the spectrums of harm that has happened and repairing that. Justice is a journey and there is a deep and nuanced awareness that among survivor and victim and family groups that there is short-term immediate justice and there is longer-term justice. I think it's important to reflect on how the different groups of victims, survivors and families might organise around specific principles like accountability or like truth, but at an individual level, what it is to have justice done one is complex and changes across time and two depends on your immediate individual circumstances thank you so much i think the idea of indeed breaking these justice needs and priorities down is so important and you did that um, so eloquently and uh, wonderfully justice is a journey that will uh, i think stick It's a pleasure to be with you and thank you for having me alongside such incredible activists. That was a great introduction to the issue of uh, victims' activism. This is a topic that has not been researched or debated in depth, despite the great work of uh, the victim groups. Yeah, and Cristela explained very well how former detainees took the lead in this kind of activism even well before 2016. That was, of course, the moment when the first official victim groups were established. And as we heard in the last episode, the Syrian Gulag, or the prison system, of course, led the basis for a lot of the actions and the resistance against the regime's annihilation policies. Yeah, this is the subject of uh, my conversation with Riyad Avlar. He is one of the founders of the Association of Detainees and Missing Persons at Sednaya Prison. I first asked him about the reason for his involvement. In 2017, I was released from prison, where I spent 21 years. I was one of the founders of the Association of Detainees and the Missing in Sednaya Prison. Why did we establish the association? First of all, because it was very important to have an association for the survivors of detention centers in Syria to unite them. 
so that their voice could be heard more strongly in the international community and reach decision-makers who deal with the Syrian issue, but also so that they themselves can pursue justice. The second reason concerns the centrality of the issue for the families of the missing in Syria more generally. We needed to support them and assist them in their search for their loved ones. In the beginning, we realized that we should shed light on the Sednaya prison. Sednaya prison was even called the human slaughterhouse by Amnesty International. And to be honest, it's where the Syrian regime is silently slaughtering its people. So it was necessary to shed light on this place, which the whole world must see, especially the international human rights community. What I found fascinating about his account is the way in which this kind of activism arose out of very concrete needs, and it was led by the former detainees, who are, after all, the experts on this issue. But because of the immense needs and the very steep learning curve, they quickly became very professional. The association of detainees and the missing in Sednaya prison was one of the first victims' associations. It had sufficient experience in supporting what we call the issue of detention in Syria. But, at first, we were only working in the field of human rights documentation with survivors of Sednaya prison. Yet, step by step, we began to understand that human rights documentation works in its own ways. We saw that especially after establishing the Family Center, which provides psychotherapy and psychological support for those suffering from traumas of war and torture. So we gained experience and acknowledged the importance of providing psychosocial support during our work in documentation, and that we couldn't work on documentation without also providing this psychosocial support. It was civil society organizations who worked on the issue of detention, and we are certainly grateful for the work that they did. But, for us, as victims and survivors of detention ourselves, it's not enough and doesn't match our ambition, largely because we are driven by the cause. In the association of detainees in the missing in Sednaya prison, we were aware of this issue and we aspired to transforming the story of the detention issue in Syria from a project into a proper case in and of itself. This means that the participants or those who do the work are the victims themselves, because no one but the victims themselves can express the pain, the feelings and the needs of victims. So the association was able to help other organizations to see this model of work and build on the experience that we gained. To that end, it certainly helped other victim groups and civil society organizations shift and adjust their respective models. The Association of Detainees and the Missing in Sydneya Prison is intent on transforming the lives of victims and beyond that, of course, they also want to transform the road to justice. And one of the main issues they've been working with, along with other organizations, which are Families for Freedom, the Caesar Families Association, Masar and Ta'afi, is the Truth and Justice Charter. The Charter lays out a common vision and framework on the question of enforced disappearance and arbitrary detention in Syria. I ask Riyadh, why is it so essential in their work? The Charter was necessary for us and for all the victim groups. Why? Because in the Charter we set out the broad outlines on the issue of detention in Syria and we spelled out the most appropriate solutions to begin to tackle this issue. For example, there is the issue of the refugees' return from countries hosting Syrian refugees. We explained that this is not possible to envisage returning to Syria when the issue of detention and enforced disappearance has not been resolved. 
If anyone is deported to Syria, this person will be the next in forced disappearance case as a result. Or, if we take the example of the issue of reconstruction, how will these countries accept reconstruction while under its very soil there are still the bodies of the forcibly disappeared and their fate has not yet been revealed? It is very important to address these points, which are also the victims' demands regarding a solution to the issue of detention in Syria. Moreover, it is not possible for Syria to have a political solution and, for example, to have a constitutional committee or to have political discussions and negotiations before there is a solution to the issue of detention and enforced disappearance in Syria. We, the five groups of victims, raise these main points so that if the issue of detention is discussed, the Charter will serve as a guide and a reference point and so that the demands of the victims and the families of the missing or survivors will also be taken into account. هاي هي مطالبنا الأساسية وممكن هاي المطالب لسه تتوسع بس هاي هي الخطوط العريضة لما It's also astonishing how quickly that the charter became a reference point and also that the victim groups managed to push for concrete solutions for the missing persons in Syria. In June 2021, they published their own study in cooperation with Impunity Watch that recommends the establishment of a mechanism for the missing and detained. Yes, and uh, as Riyadh explains, this mechanism needs to focus on obtaining the release of detainees, searching for the disappeared and missing, and finding and identifying the remains of those who are no longer alive. It must be victim-centered and independent. Um, the most important issue that we are currently working on as a victims group is a mechanism for missing persons in Syria. This mechanism must be international in nature. This is crucial. For example, if an international organization wants to work on discovering the fate of the missing persons in Syria, how can it do so without the approval from the United Nations, and if it can't enter Syria? There is no way to force the Syrian regime to allow this organization to enter and to detect the locations of mass graves or secret detention centers in Syria. So, it was very important that we would work on a mechanism for missing persons in Syria that is independent and doesn't intend to work on accountability. This is needed in order for the international community, including Russia and Iran, to accept this mechanism. In this way, we can reassure every mother about her missing son. If he is dead, she will be handed over his remains so that she can begin to accept this harsh reality. Because there are also blackmailers who tear apart the families of the missing by telling lies about their fates. These people don't only destroy these families financially, but also socially and psychologically. One of our important achievements is that the international mechanism for missing persons in Syria will be led by the victims of the families of the missing. Another important achievement is that we were able to prove to the international community that the victims themselves are able to lead this process and that they have the capacity and potential to do so. You talked about similar issues to Yasmin Al-Marshan, who is a founding member of the Caesars Family Association, and we wanted to hear the perspectives from different organizations on the very main evolutions in the domain of victims' activism. Just like you did with Riyadh, you asked her first about her reasons for the involvement in the organization. The Caesar Families Association at the Association of the Families of the Victims who Identified Loved Ones and the Caesar Photos. As one of the members and founders, I recognized one of my relatives among the Caesar Photos. This was my brother Ukba, 
who was arrested by the Syrian regime on 29th March 2012. We only knew about this after his transfer from the Air Force Intelligence branch in Deir Zor to Damascus branch. But then we lost the track of him. On March 15, 2015, I discovered that Ukba was tortured to death through a tag on one of the published photos. When I opened the picture, it was clearly defined. There was no doubt that it was his picture. Therefore, when the idea of the Caesars Families Association was proposed, I was one of the initiators and co-founders. Yasmin didn't only lose her brother Uqba, whom she recognized among the Caesar photos. I also lost four other brothers, one of whom was kidnapped by ISIS. He is now considered as one of the forcibly disappeared persons by ISIS when ISIS entered the city of Deir Resort in 2014. During the time when we were waiting for Ukba to be freed from prison, I lost the rest of my brothers because we had stayed in Syria for a long time as we were hoping for Ukba's release from prison. Unfortunately, in 2012, a sniper killed my brother Ubaida while he was trying to help one of the injured who was shot by the sniper. Ten days later, my other brother Tishreen was also killed by a sniper. And when we lost my brother Bashar, we decided we had to leave Syria. She also confirms that the charter was a milestone clearly setting out the short-term and the long-term priorities for victims and their families in order to propose a concrete solutions. From the beginning, when we proposed the idea of the Truth and Justice Charter, we set our vision that there is short-term justice in long-term justice. The reason is that justice paths are usually long and take a very long time that may take years. But there are urgent needs and necessities for us as families that must be prioritized to initiate the first stage from which justice begins. These are an immediate hold to torture in human treatment and sexual crimes in detention centers and prisons, revealing the fate of the forcibly disappeared and returning the remains of those killed under conditions of enforced disappearance and detention. At the families of the victims, we believe that building peace begins from this point. It's so interesting to hear Yasmin's reconstruction of advocacy and research by victim groups because they looked into previous initiatives in other countries in their own study that was published last year and where they first addressed the need for a mechanism. This has led the UN General Assembly in December 2021 to request the Secretary General for a feasibility study into this mechanism. Always, when we ask countries about revealing the fate of the forcibly disappeared and the release of the detainees, they answer that they don't have solutions. Hence, we proposed a solution to help us reach our goal, which is to reveal the fate of the forcibly disappeared, 
and accordingly the idea of the mechanism was proposed. Then followed a study into this idea and several advocacy campaigns. This then triggered an interest from countries and international organizations. The UN Commission of Inquiry for Syria recommended the General Assembly to establish a mechanism. Accordingly, a decision was issued to do a feasibility study about establishing a mechanism based on previous efforts. Hence, this mechanism wouldn't be built from scratch, but would be based on the efforts by Syrian civil society organizations and victims' associations, as well as international organizations to reveal the fate of the disappeared. These efforts can result in a solution that could be the most feasible to reveal the fate of the missing and forcibly disappeared in Syria. As Yasmin demonstrates, the joint efforts by the charter groups led to this renewed interest. She insists, though, that these efforts are shared by many civil society groups. We have a goal that unites us as Syrians and as civil society organizations. On the other hand, there are many efforts at the level of individual organizations to reveal the fate of the detainees and to follow up on their fate. These efforts could also result in the establishment of a mechanism. It's possible to use these efforts and assemble them in one melting pot to solve the issue of the disappeared persons. The next conversation echoes this focus on joint work. You spoke to Hiba Al-Hamid, a member of the Coalition of Families of Persons Kidnapped by ISIS, also called Masar. This is a collective of families which was found in 2019. Welcome, Hiba. It's great to have you on board of this episode on victims' activism. Firstly, I wanted to ask you about the reasons for your personal involvement in Masar. Okay, so let's start from uh, from the beginning. My father, Ismail Hamoud, got kidnapped in the 2nd of November 2013. So at that moment, we started as a family just to search him. We, st- we stay like we were in Syria and like we were doing this personal small effort like trying to know where where is he if he's still alive if we can reach him if we can have a deal with the with the group who, who kidnapped him like it's ISIS in general then we we left Syria in 2015 we st- we kept like just asking have contact with people who are still in Syria and then in 2017 when uh, when the coalition started their operation against uh, ISIS at that moment, when, when when ISIS was defeated, like it was partly defeated, not like uh, not completely, uh, only in, in Raqqa city. So at that moment, we started like small groups just to ask to do some like pressure on the coalition in order to take into consideration the issue of disappeared. But there was no answer. To, we were really so disappointed. Uh, we tried. We tried like during months in order just to push. But nothing happened. Like they were just fighting ISIS, and they like they didn't care a lot. So in 2019, I knew that the coalition was created, and I saw how like individual uh, effort didn't make any effect. And I said maybe if we are more organized, if we make more like official, more like uh, institutionalized uh, effort, maybe it can make an effort. So. Uh, other families proposed, why don't you join us, etc. 
And since that moment, like it's, I think I joined them in 2020, March 2020, if I'm not mistaken. So I started just to work with them. The issue became more because it was so ignored for a long time by the international community. Like people always focus on the crimes committed by the Assad regime and they don't care a lot about the other perpetrators. And then since we started a little bit to get more organized, I think things became better than before. Do you feel that the attention for the crimes by other perpetrators has changed after Massage started its activities? Is there more consciousness about different forms of harm caused by other perpetrators, such as ISIS, but also jihadi groups? But for sure, before Massar, people were not mentioning, not at all ISIS. All the side events, all the attention, all the, the reports were about the Assad regime violations and what they are doing, but not really mentioning ISIS or, I don't know, Jabhat al-Nusra and all these jihadist groups. I feel we, at least at the international level, I think we made an effort, at least when we are talking about different group of victims or of violations, ISIS is still mentioned in every time, in every single like event. And that's really so good. Yeah, that's very important indeed. I also wondered if you feel when it comes to crimes committed by different perpetrators, that there is a sort of hierarchy between the crimes or that there might be competition between different victims based on who the perpetrator is. To be honest, for sure we can't compare what the Assad regime is still doing and what the other group. I think there is a, a huge difference for the quantity, for all the, the violations. For sure, like the Assad, they have their army and they are more organized and all this stuff. But we can't ignore that there are many violations that are committed by the other groups. In terms of victims, I feel there is not at all a competition because if we want to, for example, if we want to reveal the truth, there is no problem if we reveal the truth of what happened to the detainees in the, all the prisons, not only the prisons of the Assad regime. I think there is not at all a competition. If we want to hold accountable the responsible ones, there is no no problem if we hold these groups or the others. For sure, like I think we have other like different sources of information, for example, concerning ISIS or Jafat al-Nusra. We have maybe other tools at the end, like it's the same right, right to truth and right to justice, mm -hmm. and we can achieve it regardless of the, the perpetrator. What is also quite remarkable in the Syrian context is that victim groups are really at the forefront of a lot of these efforts, but of course there's also a cost for victims. Could you give some more background on the consequences of their activism and also maybe on the tension between the possible danger of re-traumatization and the emancipation of victims? I'm so proud of all these efforts of all of us, of all the families who are just working and working and they simply don't give up. And I think it makes a difference because we have to impose our like our vision of justice and it should not be imposed by others. That's so important for us. But still it's not easy because remembering every time the, these sad stories, talking about our beloved ones every time and mentioning some personal details I feel like every time I talk about my dad, I leave it like again and again. So it's not really easy. And also what's so important to know that this work has no direct consequences. We know that it's for the long term and it's not easy for us. The most important thing for me is I want my dad to be back. This is my ultimate objective. But I know I have to work and to work and to work. I know nothing can just happen directly. So this point is really so difficult for the families. It's a very burning out work for long term. And I think this is so hard for us. 
It must be very hard indeed to always focus on the long-term perspectives. I wanted to ask you with regard to the far away and also the near future about the future of justice efforts by Syrian victim groups. How do you conceive of their activism and how do you think it will evolve in the future? Sometimes I'm so pessimist, <laughs> but sometimes when I see these small steps that we did when we got unified the victim groups, I feel more optimist because even if we don't see the consequences with our eyes for the moment, but I see that at least there is a reaction towards our involvement, towards our activism. We saw how we imposed the charter, for example, the mechanism, even if it's small, but it's so important because right now the international community even among themselves, they are talking about that. So I feel like it's so important that we became in front of the issue. Our voices at least are heard and nothing is imposed on us. I believe that it needs a lot of time. I think we have to work and to work because the situation is not really so nice. At least making an effort and believing that one day we will arrive, even if it's for the long, long time, that's so important. Thank you so much, Hiba. I wish you all the best with your efforts in the short term, especially, and also, of course, in the long term. Thank you for you, too. This was a wonderful last conversation. It underscores so well how victim groups overcome the many silences that they had to endure. Yeah, and also their voices are resounding in many different places. But furthermore, they managed to impose their presence on the international scene. And thus they raise attention for the centrality of the issue of the forcibly disappeared and the missing. And of course, this will also be highlighted in the Impunity Watch report that will be launched in September. Exactly. In our next and last episode of the series, we will reflect on what this means for the pursuit of justice. More broadly, we will also talk about the uh, consequences of the Syrian tragedy on the wider field of international justice. And for now, I would like to thank our guests, Angel Depau and Maisa Tanjur, for the voiceover. And thank you, of course, to our listeners. Feel free to send us your comments and questions for the last episode. And bye for now. Thank you. This was Justice Visions. To re-listen to this episode, or to browse our archive, visit our website, justicevisions.org, or subscribe now via Spotify or Apple Music. Justice Visions is made possible through generous funding of the European Research Council. <laughs>